So Money episode 1149, Kimberly Seals Allers, journalist, advocate, and entrepreneur. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Karabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. I had decided during my, you know, while I was going through a divorce to leave my, you know, well-paying job because it was really, in thinking about this now, that divorce was certainly a tipping point for me to realize that I could not maintain my career and be the mother that I needed to be for my children, particularly through this tough transition. Welcome to So Money, everybody. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Today's guest is Kimberly Seals Allers, founder of the app Earth, I-R-T-H, as in birth, but without the B for bias. And I, you know, initially invited her to the podcast because I wanted to learn about this amazing technology and and her advocacy work helping women of color through birth and motherhood and the impact of race, class, and policy on this journey that so many people take for granted, but for some women is such a unique and struggling experience. But oh, did we discuss so much more. You just heard Kimberly talk a little bit about her divorce and the surprising steps she took to navigate that tough chapter in her life. And when she goes on to provide advice for anyone listening on how to financially prepare for a divorce during a pandemic. More about Kimberly. She is an award-winning journalist, five-time author, international speaker, strategist, and advocate for maternal and infant health. A former senior editor at Essence and writer at Fortune Magazine, Kimberly is also a graduate of New York University and Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. And she's a divorced mother of two who lives in Queens, New York. I think you'll enjoy this. Here's Kimberly Seals Allers. Kimberly Seals Allers, welcome to So Money and Happy New Year. 2021 is here. Can you believe it? I cannot believe it. And thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to learn from you and I feel a kinship. We share an alma mater. We, you and I both attended the Columbia Journalism School, you as a Knight Badgett Fellow, which is so prestigious. And from there, you went and pursued a career in business journalism, money journalism, which is which was my beginning as well, uh, working in magazines. Yeah. And it's just so amazing to see how you have really taken control of your career. It's not something that you necessarily learn in school, but how to really... Um, uh, put together this dynamic career for yourself that touches on, I think, so many of your interests, your work, whether it's you know writing for Bloomberg or writing books or creating companies, being an advocate, it seems um, you're truly following your passion in each instance. And the question for me is, where do we begin? But I thought I, we would begin because it is still a recession that we are all living in. Um, and although we are very hopeful for 2021 to turn things around, you wrote a really poignant article for Bloomberg Opinion, which also I write for Bloomberg Opinion. Yay. So you see where I'm I'm seeing a lot of the, uh, the, color, <laughs> the overlap. But you wrote a really important piece on how women of color in particular can navigate the COVID-19 recession world and how to financial plan in this world. And you were very upfront about your own life 
you said in the beginning of the article, look, I have a triple risk of financial failure in this pandemic. I'm a black woman. I am divorced and therefore a single parent and I run my own business. And so would love for you to give our audience your advice and strategy for women in particular women of color right now, how to navigate their finances. Yeah, I think that's so important. And I think the most important part is recognizing that you're at risk. You know, it's easy, particularly, you know, given what 2020 was, um, to just kind of get caught up in survival, which everyone needed to do and, and pivoting and transition and figuring out on, on new, on new normals. But, you know, to first acknowledge that, um, you know, black women, women of color are at a greater risk not just around what we were learning about the the pandemic itself, but also about the financial fallout. And so I really wanted to, um, you know, write something that helped people think through what are those challenges? What could that look like at different income levels? Um, And then, and what could that mean in terms of rethinking big picture stuff, such as the need for community, such as the need to kind of really hold on to your cash right now. Um, So those were the things that were really important um, in terms of thinking about how we might create some sort of financial planning time, uh, some, some sort of financial planning advice for uncertain times. I really appreciated the advice around asking for help because you pointed out that women in particular, but also women of color, you know, the on the on the one side, more than any other person, they're the ones that are starting businesses and being self-employed. Uh, And so they're conditioned to sort of do things very independently, but now is not the time to try to shoulder all of this on your own. And that there, there is a uh, needed advice to be given about like, ask for help as, as easy as that sounds, it's still hard for a lot of women. It is really hard. And I think that, you know, particularly black women, we do have a strong cultural association with being strong and independent. That makes us feel good. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that I'm talking more about is how to be strong yet soft and know when you need to switch that up. But I'm also letting people know I'm taking off my cape and my boots. I am putting them to the side every now and then. And that's also really important that we don't allow, you know, an, an, uh, a stereotype to become something that's overwhelming. And yes, asking for help is important. Um, I talked in the piece around really the need for community and, you know, really working together because I think that's something that has been very intrinsic to communities of color that may have gotten lost. But what I did, you know, see during the pandemic were people creating new communities. Sometimes that was just the people who were closest to you who could help you and people working together to do that um, grocery store run and do the fight at BJ's. So that was really important. And so I think that is also a big part of how um, women of color need to financially prepare themselves to think about the ways that if they needed to save, well, how can partnering with others, how could that more um, communal approach be helpful for saving? Um, Since nobody is, you know, how can you redirect money that you're not using for certain things into other things? We don't really need any new clothes for work right now. I've got my four Zoom shirts and they work great. So, um, you know, how can I redirect my uh, clothing allowance to some other things? And so it was really just around also thinking about redirecting funds, um, rethinking community, and um, also remembering that um, savings in terms of having cash during uncertain times is always going to be the best move. 
Did you practice a lot of this advice yourself in 2020? I definitely have a Zoom uniform. I, I invested in like four or five blouses all under like $50 and I called it a day. Exactly. You just need a good pop of color and you know, what's going on under, on the bottom is nobody's business. So I definitely have taken that approach. You know, I think that one of the things I talk about in the story was in the article was really about as well, thinking about opportunities. You know, some people may, may have not been financially harmed by the pandemic and have been thinking about maybe it's a time for me to make a purchase and is this a time to buy? Um, but really just always thinking about those scenarios scenarios in terms of uncertainty could be um, also critically important. And also never forgetting about retirement and making sure that if anything, uh, people are focused on those retirement savings, because again, that's another area where um, Black women uh, savings lag um, those of white women. And so we really want to think through how we can uh, reprioritize, redirect some funds, and really boost the savings in the places where it's really important. At some point in your career, you pivoted a bit from being a business reporter. You have written for Fortune and uh, New York Post, Wall Street Reporter, um, Essence Magazines. There you were senior editor for personal finance and careers. And then you pivoted into more uh, advocacy work in maternal and infant health uh, advocacy and entrepreneurship. What brought on that pivot? Um, I almost feel like the underpinning of both of those worlds is your devotion to being an advocate and bringing important information to the forefront. You're a storyteller at the end yes. of the day, but w what was it that inspired you to go into the new line of work of maternal and infant health advocacy? Well, I have to say it was really becoming a mother myself. You know, I have wanted to be a journalist since I was eight years old. I've never done anything but envisioned that life for myself, um, worked really hard, went to NYU for undergrad and like you, Columbia for graduate school. Um, but when I became a mother, I, you know, my priorities shifted. And part of that process was, you know, for good or for worse, uh, I probably over-researched myself and took a journalist approach to pregnancy where I was asking every question and trying to find every answer. Don't do that, anyone out there. Um, so, uh, and in that process of, you know, of inquiry throughout my pregnancy and learning, I was shocked to learn what I learned about what was happening, particularly to black women in birth outcomes and, you know, the, the, the low breastfeeding rates. I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, and I was blessed to have been educated. I was blessed to not be poor. And I did not realize that I was still at a higher risk of dying during childbirth, having a low birth weight baby or preterm birth than, um, you know, than other women, particularly even studies show that college educated black women, you know, have worse outcomes than white women with no high school diploma. For white women, education and income improves their birth outcomes. That is not the case for black women. So I was scared. You know, and I couldn't accept as a journalist that there was no answer. I was looking for answers. I was looking for answers, looking for the solution. Someone must have covered this and nobody really had. And so that really became the impetus behind my very first book, which came out in 2006. And then me kind of thinking about ways to use communication and storytelling as a tool to address some of the issues that were going on around pregnancy, childbirth, breastfeeding, you know, in, in the maternal and health and infant space. Why was the mortality rate different for infant births for white women versus black women? I'm just curious, what did your research tell you? 
Well, you know, what we know now, and when I first started, this research was very, very early on, was the impact of racism and bias on Black women, their bodies. And that, you know, scientists have now discovered and studied for many years this concept of weathering, which means that the kind of lifelong uh, experiences of racism, whether that's microaggressions, whether that's many things that I experienced, you know, in elementary school, you know, when I was the only black girl in the gifted program to, you know, other like that wears against your body. So that black women are technically, although by all intents and purposes, quote unquote healthy, their bodies have been weathered so that they are entering pregnancy in, in a compromised state um, through no fault of their own. And so it is it's seemingly virtually impossible to reverse that, even if you're doing, you know, the, all the diet and exercise and following all the rules of pregnancy. You cannot reverse years and years of the stress of being black in this country by, you know, eating well for nine months. And so that is one of the issues. Um, another issue is that we know that black women disproportionately have um, certain medical conditions that can be more harmful to pregnancy, whether that is high blood pressure. We know about food deserts and what that means about food access and the cost of whole foods, right? Which I call whole paycheck. So, you know, we, we know that these are layered issues, but they impact black and brown women the hardest. So, you know, it's it's complex, but it's something that we need to be talking about and and doing more. And I felt called to use my skills to 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 help if if anyway and to support my community. And now there is Earth, birthwithoutbias.com. Tell us about Earth and as in birth, but we dropped the B for bias. Yes. We did. So Earth is a Yelp-like app. Um, it's a review and rating platform for black and brown women and birthing people of color to leave reviews of doctors and hospitals and to find reviews of doctors and hospitals. Um, and so on the back, on the front end, we're creating this opportunity for you to learn what it is that others like you are saying about a particular provider and to you, let people know that you're using that um, as part of your decision-making process when choosing a hospital to give birth at or choosing a physician. And then on the back end, we're building, we have this amazing database. So we turn those qualitative experiences into quantitative data that allows us to look for patterns and really push for change with hospitals so that we're able to see, you know, where are, what hospitals are consistently getting good reviews? What's going on there? What are the best practices that could be replica, replicated in, in other places? Um, and the same for those who may begin consistently poor reviews. What, what's, what's, what hasn't been going on there that could be implemented? What's the training? What are the solutions that could be developed? But we want to do this all based on that lived experience, all based on um, what we know is happening as reported in the app. So I'm excited about that potential for as a tool for change. And I'm excited about leveraging consumer forces for good, because I think ultimately um, when all women use Earth and say, hey, doctor, I'm a white woman, but I checked your Earth reviews and they weren't great. So I'm going to have to go elsewhere that then we end up leveraging our complete women's consumer power as a tool to help those who are being disproportionately harmed by the system. So that's the part that makes me really happy. And the app just launched uh, at the top of this year. Yes. What excites you more about your work? Is it 
the, you know, the storytelling? Is it the business of starting a business? Is it the innovation? Is it the advocacy? Your work intersects so many skills and strengths. I'm just curious what what lights you up the most? Oh, wow. That's a great question. Um, I think all of it lights me up. Certainly, you know, I'm a storyteller at my core. And for me, Earth is really an extension of, you know, taking people's stories putting them on a digital platform and leveraging, figuring out how to leverage and translate those into a tool for change. So that makes me really excited. Um, I love to um, lift up stories like that is what I love doing. And whether that was, you know, one person's story in, in a Fortune article or the stories of thousands and thousands of black and brown women um, through an app, that part makes me really excited. Um, and then ultimately, I enjoy living a life where I feel that I am working toward being a tool for change um, mm-hmm. in service of my community. I feel proud of that in terms of what my children see me spending a lot of time on. Um, mm-hmm. And so all of that really guides me and I'm just honored. And I feel really strongly that my business journalism training and my understanding of how money works in this country um, has been an underpinning for everything. And one of my mentors said to me early on, she worked at the Wall Street Journal. I met her in college and she said, every story is a business story. And I have found that to be true for so many things that, you know, everything you do in this, particularly in this country is about money, whether you're talking about education, whether you're talking about food, whether you're talking about maternal care, whether you're talking about actual business, like, you know, so having that basic understanding of the capital markets and the ways money works and having that exposure to be able to sit across from some of the captains of industry who I was able to write about has been all part of what, you know, I feel like I'm bringing to my, to my life and to my work right now. And that makes me pretty excited. Yeah. It was a business uh, reporting class that I took at Columbia. My, my teacher said, if you want a good story, just follow the money. Absolutely. And you could present a story could present itself as a story about, you know, something else, maybe a, a, a community story, a school about the arts, but then just follow the money. <laughs> you will get to something more interesting, At perhaps. Politics. I mean, everything mm-hmm. is about money. And so I think being able to think that way, being able to understand business interests, because when you speak to business people, you need to understand you know, how to speak in their language and what drives them and what are those market forces that they care about. And so, you know, all of that has never left me. And I think it has helped me um, in my entrepreneurial endeavors because I do understand the way businesses think and the ways companies need to operate. And that's important for people. What drew you to business journalism? I can understand what might draw you to journalism as I was drawn to that as a, at a very young age. I love storytelling. I love to ask questions. I'm a curious person, but I don't think I ever thought at age 12, I can't wait to write about money. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I'm just curious, what was your trajectory towards that field? Well, you know what? I didn't really see myself as a business journalist, but I was in a program. I can't remember which one it was, but I was exposed to business journalists. One became a mentor that was assigned to me. And, you know, she also had that refrain, right? Every story is a business story, follow the money. And the more I thought about it, I was interested, right? To kind of 
look at this underside. And to be completely honest, she also said that business journalists makes, make more money and that I need a specialty to survive in journalism. So I was like, okay, let me get a specialty to survive in journalism. So I think that, um, you know, I saw it as a, as a challenge and I've never really walked away from my challenge. My very first job out of college, I was covering the bond market. And if you have ever thought about the bond market, first, you shouldn't. And two, you should know that um, it is, you know, not like the stock market. And so I've always looked for an intellectual challenge. Um, I was fascinated by it and just kind of kept going and found ways to balance those smaller pieces with the human stories, with profiling interesting people, with understanding the ways that, you know, Wall Street was creating things. Wall Street is very innovative. Um, And meeting the people behind it. It was just fascinating to me. I would love to be on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange and all the cursing. So that's where I learned how to swear. Um, (laughs) And uh, I just loved it all. I love the adrenaline. I, I just enjoyed it. You're very open about your personal life. Going back to Bloomberg Opinion, you recently wrote about how women should navigate a divorce in this moment in this pandemic, you know, you talked about your own experience and people listening uh, might be uh, turning up the volume right now if they're in a relationship uh, where they're not so happy. The recession and pandemic has really made us reflect on so much and maybe you realize you want out of your relationship. But in your opinion, Kimberly, is now a good time to call it quits? Uh, how do you tread here? You say tread very very carefully. Yeah, it's definitely a time to tread very carefully. And obviously we are not talking about anyone who may be experiencing, you know, physical violence, domestic violence, emotional violence. Mm -hmm. You know, we are talking about people who have options um, and are not under extreme circumstances. But if you can, it is more of a time. And I spoke to a lot of lawyers, you know, um, it was actually, as I mentioned at the beginning of the story, I took a, I did my divorce all the wrong ways, took a terrible financial hit that took me, you know, nearly 10 years to fully recover from. Um, and that was with two children. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about this issue and making sure that women have the information that they need to do it correctly. But really what the lawyers were saying was to first ask yourself, you know, are you able to do this? Um, and then to think about, could this be a better time for strategic planning, For example, if you're not the person who knows all the finances, maybe this is the time that you prepare to get to know the finances, start to get those financial records, maybe start your own savings. Like, could this be a preparation time? Um, We talked in that article about some very specific things about valuation in terms of, you know, if your spouse, whatever, may have a business that you think could be valued in terms of determining your child support or other support? Is this business being valued more or less right now? You know, if someone has commercial real estate, it's unclear as to what's happening with rents. And so maybe that business could be devalued, you know, legitimately, and that could impact how much money you receive. And so there were a number of variables to be thinking through in terms of whether this was actually a good time financially, but also more importantly, if you were literally emotionally and and actually prepared um, to to actually divorce and do so in a way that wouldn't be um, harmful to you. 
Yeah, it's really hard. And you're absolutely right about using this time to just kind of get organized as opposed to make impulse declarations like, I want out. But before you say that, like, do you have a bank account? (laughs) Certain things need to be in place. How did you recover? What were some steps that you took? Hmm, I feel like I've tried to block it all out, but... um, uh, this is the show where we bring back all the bring back all the memories, you know, all the memories, all the memories. Okay, so how did I get out? It was definitely methodical. It was certainly going back to some real basics around budgeting. Um, and to be really honest, which was really interesting, I had decided during my, you know, while I was going through a divorce to leave my, you know, well-paying job because it was really, and thinking about this now, that divorce was certainly a tipping point for me to realize that I could not maintain my career and be the mother that I needed to be for my children, particularly through this tough transition. You know, I had help. I had a wonderful nanny who lived with us in the home. But, you know, my commute was horrible. My hours were crazy. I was traveling a lot. You know, in any other circumstance, it would have been a dream. But, you know, thinking about what my children needed at that time in terms of a present parent, I couldn't deliver that. And that brought me a lot of guilt. And so one of the things I always talk about about this moment was that I had to redefine risk because everybody said to me, you're crazy. Who is going through a divorce and leaves their six-figure job, right? You know, that is risky. And I thought, no, the risk of not being there for my children, for them to be harmed in a way that I couldn't address or mitigate was the risk I was not willing to take. Right. And so I will always bet on myself, um, but I was not willing to take the risk of, uh, in my opinion, failing my children and um, not being present for them. And so I talk a lot about that. I redefine risk for myself. And I think women need to do that. Um, Also, I had a vision for what I wanted to do. And I had a plan for leaving my job. Um, And, you know, I worked on that plan. I gave up my weekends. I told my girlfriends, don't even invite me out because my, my weekends are my children and this business plan and trying to build it up to get it to a point where it was income generating before I actually stepped away from my, from my job. And, you know, doing all that work, like literally working two jobs so I could have one. <laughs> um, and so, wow, we're really going back here for Anoush. Okay, so before I have- It's a Columbia journalism and degree, what can I say? <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was a real part of the process. Um, and then, you know, it was those basics. It was about the savings. It was about the budgeting. It was about having a plan to scale my business and to think about where I could get some good clients and some big checks, to be quite honest. And so, um, you know, I had to- really give up a lot. I sacrifice my social life for many years for the sake of having time for my children and my business. And that's how I dug myself out, like one foot in front of the other, step by step, you know, client by client, project by project. You know, it it was a long slog, but I did it. And I'm really proud of, you know, that journey. And I'm really proud of you know, what, what, I, what I have become because of it, right? Um, and who I have become because of it. So that's important too. It's a story about bravery too. Give yourself that. I wrote down redefine risk Yeah, as you were talking. I really so appreciate when guests come on this show and they give us something 
to think about that's a, a, that goes against the grain or is counterintuitive or isn't the typical advice that you hear, you know, leaving your job in the middle of a divorce is counter to what you think you're supposed to do. But right now in this day and age, I feel like we need to confront some of these traditional ways of thinking mm-hmm. and flip them on their head. I mean, this, this is the stuff that gives me oxygen when I do this show because I'm like, yes, I feel like I'm not just ru- doing the same old show. You th- so thank you, Kimberly. No, thank you for bringing that out. I had almost forgot about that um, that period, but it's it's important. And um, I always want women to believe in themselves um, because that is important and the world will continue to tell us what we should and shouldn't do. Um, but sometimes we have to bet, bet, bet on yourself. That's what I do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Trust your gut. That's it. Trust your instinct. Be brave. You ha- you are brave. Don't just be brave. Just know that you are brave. You've written five books <laughs> and <laughs> your second book, I think, uh, is timeless. It came out in 2009, but I think now more than ever, it is even more relevant. It's called The Mocha Manual to Turning Your Passion into Profit, focusing on entrepreneurship for Black and Latina women. As someone who experienced the road to entrepreneurship yourself, what's your advice for women of color in this, I guess, well, 2021, um, as they navigate entrepreneurship today? I think I can. we could both agree that some things have improved for the better, but there are still headwinds. There are still headwinds. And I think some things have improved. One of the things I think has improved is that there are a lot more role models out there. When I think about the, the research and reporting work that I did to try to find um, candidates for that book, it was a different process than if I was writing that book today. And I'm really excited to say that, you know, it would be a lot less work um, for me to come up with those lists that I was creating and, and, the, and the metrics that I was looking for. So that's great news. And I, one thing I remember, and I saw this um, last year during Women's Entrepreneurship Day, was that um, one of my inspirations for that book was that Black women were in the highest category of starting businesses. They start businesses at high rate, but they don't have the same success rates as white women um, in business. They don't scale the same. They don't have the same revenues. And so there was this there was this disconnect between clearly you have a group of women who are inspired to do their own thing, but they don't have that. They're missing out on the skills to actually scale it up. And I think that's also has changed because I think that in general, women have created more networks, um, which is critically important to growing your business. Um, people are more black and brown women are seeing themselves as entrepreneurs. We've had more models. Um, I think I interviewed Carol Price in that story when she just started Carol's daughter, which, you know, we saw blow up, go into Target and got sold yes. to, I think, L'Oreal, right? So yes. um, <laughs> just one of the people that I interviewed. Um, so, you know, now we, we, we can see that journey in ways that wasn't available, that we didn't have as many models and role models as we have right now. So I think that's really exciting. Um, and I think what we really have to learn is, is the networking piece. How do we work more together as a community of women to share resources, to, you know, to do different things, um, to support each other, to understand these business you know, mechanics that are so important. And then the second piece of that that I want to say is really, really important because the book is entitled Turn Your Passion Into Your Profit. And I find that many times when people 
uh, start a business from their passion that they forget about the business stuff, right? They're just happy to be doing something nice, which is great. And if that's your only goal, that's fine. But if you really want it to be business wise, you really want to make sure that you don't, you know, that you always think as a business person, that you're always applying those business principles to your business, which often may include that this is, this is a wonderful hobby, but this is not a viable business strategy, right? Mm-hmm. This is not a viable business plan. I think that's um, a little bit harder for people who may be passionate about something. So really helping people to think through that distinction and to understand what's the difference, right, between that great idea that may be something you do on the side versus something that's actually scalable to a real business, you know, in a relatively reasonable amount of time. Um, and then which journey are you going on? you know, of those options. And so just, I hope that we are continuing to have these conversations. You know, like I said, that book came out, you said in 2009. Yeah, so, the recession, the last recession, exactly, exactly. which was a great time to start a business, by the way. <laughs> that is what they say. So, um, so yeah, so I think that is just critically important. I think the other thing for is so critical as we think about life in 2021 and post pandemic is like, we know that women have been disproportionately hit by this recession, right? And and to the point where many women are opting out of work or have or did opt out of work because they couldn't, they couldn't manage what was put upon, you know, women and mothers, right? The schooling, the no childcare, the, you know, the, all of it. And so it is similarly, like I had to make a decision that I couldn't maintain, um, that, that, that career and be the mother that I needed to be for my children. Many people have made that decision, you know, in, in the pandemic. And I'm, I'm wondering if this will also spur more, more women to start their own things, um, and try to create things on their own terms and create a life that actually works for them through entrepreneurship. So I'm looking forward to seeing that data real soon. Yeah, I think you're right. I think I think for sure we're going to see another birth, a wave of women entrepreneurs, which is a great thing for everybody. But I would also hope that companies finally wake up <laughs> to the fact that women are huge assets to the workforce. Absolutely. And we should embrace that and um, rethink the workplace and the pressures that we put on our on all employees, especially those with families. Um, so uh, hopefully, hopefully we'll, that we'll work more in partnership. Absolutely. I'm hoping yeah. they're all silver linings. We have learned so much. So hopefully many of the structures around work and family and finances can be looked at differently because uh, so many lessons well, learned, that's for sure. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Kimberly Aller-Seals, thank you so much for, for joining us. And I also want to give a shout out to your most recent book, where you followed the money yet again. Uh, that book is called The Big Letdown. It's about the culture of breastfeeding and shows how money impacts everything. The business side of breastfeeding, very interesting. And I just saw that I think it was Chrissy Teigen just tweeted, not, not just so, but it was in, in the recent months about how we should um, not shame a woman for choosing one thing over the other, right? Like if you want to breastfeed, if you want to do formula, like leave us alone. <laughs> and I appreciated that because I think this can be such a contentious issue for new moms. And the last thing a new mom needs is added stress. Absolutely. And I think what we all deserve are level playing fields, but no, mm-hmm. no one deserves judgment. You know, everybody's doing the best that they can. Um, babies, you know, 
are 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 just going to be happy that they're loved and they're fed. Um, and then we, you know, need to make sure that we we understand how you know what is the role of commercial influence in helping us make those decisions or guiding us against them, or the role of policy. Right? Um, we don't have paid leave as a federal policy in this country, so. You know, people going back to work 10 days after giving birth. Is breastfeeding really an option for you? No, mm-hmm. it really, no. It, 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 you know, it's, it's possible. But what we do, what women really deserve is that it becomes accessible to everyone so people can truly choose and not be forced into something that they never really had an option for the other thing. So yes. that's important. Kimberly Seals Allers, thank you so much. We'll be following all of your work. And by all of it, I mean all of it. There's so much. You're so prolific. Uh, Congrats on everything and Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year to you too. Thanks so much to Kimberly Seals Allers. Her website is KimberlySealsAllers.com. Learn more about her work at BirthWithoutBias.com. More links and information on the So Money Podcast website, where you can also download the transcript. And while you're there, leave me a question for our Friday episodes of Ask Farnoosh. Oh, and as a reminder, since we have a lot of new listeners to the show, if you leave a review on iTunes, every Friday I pick a reviewer of the week. That person gets a free 15-minute money session with me, totally free. We can talk about whatever you want. So if you're inclined to leave a review, I would love to read what you think. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. And I hope your day is so money. Money.